Good to see everybody today. I will um, be returning today to what I spoke about last time, uh, creeds, confessions, and trustworthy sayings. And no, I'm not going to sing any songs today. That was the, f- the first question on my son Scott's mind when I <laughs> he heard I was speaking. Uh, if you want any more silly songs by Larry, you'll have to listen to the last message that's on the web there you can hear. Uh, the last time I talked, I tried to make the point that it's really impossible to get away from creed. Whenever you say that you believe something and paraphrase the Bible, you have entered the world of creed. Even, uh, even if your belief is no creed but the Bible, then that anti-creedal statement, in effect, becomes your creed. The English word that comes, uh, the English word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. Nevertheless, congregational recitations, uh, statements of faith can be great teaching tools, I believe. And I'd like to just take a little poll here. Uh, Many of us grew up in churches where the uh, Lord's Prayer, what's called the Lord's Prayer, was said often, or the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And of those three, I'd like to just ask a moment, which one of those has been the more meaningful to you as a Christian in your life as, as a Christian? Uh, just a little show of hands. Uh, how many people would raise their hand for the Apostles' Creed? Okay, good showing. How about the Nicene Creed? Okay, one. How about the Lord's Prayer? Okay. Well, there's, I, there's a lot. As I expected, the, um, the Lord's Prayer did win on that one, but it doesn't always. I was interested to see the number of hands that went up for the Apostles' Creed there. The, uh, it's, I think it's interesting that the Lord's Prayer does come from Scripture and is inspired by God. And I think it just kind of points up that when we have a creedal statement that comes out of Scripture, it's doubly effective. Last time we looked at five trustworthy or faithful sayings and one common confession from the letters of Paul to Timothy and Titus. It's too much to crowd into one message. There were six almost unrelated verses there, but uh, passages. But uh, these were common sayings in the early church. Some commentators think that they may have even been liturgical hymns. Paul added the stamp of apostolic approval to them when he included them in his instructions to Timothy and Titus. And I've included there those for you in your little handout that you have. I'm not going to go over them all again here this morning, but that's the order that we went through them here the other day. I would like to uh, draw attention, though, to this last one that's really kind of my favorite of the bunch and the one that I gave the shortest shrift to last time. um, Maybe we can do a little Bible study sort of on it this morning. It goes, uh, the saying is trustworthy for, and this comes from 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. Without looking it up in the Bible, can you fill in those blanks? Sorry, Mike, I didn't tell you that beforehand. You already got it in your scriptures. So filling in the blanks without the Bible... What would you come up with? If we die, there's something different about that, though. If we died, that's right, it's died, but it's past tense. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign, reign with him. If we, what's this next one, do you suppose? deny, or some translations may say disown. If you have NIV, I think it says disown. 
If we deny him, he also will deny us. I prefer den- deny because deny leaves open a larger range of meaning that I think the Greek word actually has, arneomai, whereas disown chooses one particular possibility among the range of meanings that exists for that word, ar- that Greek word arneomai. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot de- deny himself. Thank you. Well, let's take a macro look at these verses first from the bigger picture. Uh, These four statements have some similarities and some differences. Each statement begins with the word if and introduces a conditional that leads to a conclusion. In other words, if this is true, then this will be the result. Now, I'm no Greek scholar. You might have to talk with Randall about this. Uh, I'm not talking to you. I, I did look it up in the Greek, and I could compare the letters, and I saw it's the same Greek word for if in each one of these cases. But uh, I'm told, or I was told by some commentators, that there there are two kinds of if in the Greek. That there's an if that means, and perhaps it's true. And there's an if that means, and it is definitely true, and could be translated since. This is the one that supposedly is, is if and is definitely true. And so you could say, in a sense, you could go back to these verses and say, since we live in him, we shall also live, since we died with him, we shall also live with him. Since we endure, we shall also reign with him. Since we deny him, he also will deny us. Since we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And that adds some different context, doesn't it, when you say it that way. Notice that the subject, now coming back to English, I do know English, and notice that the subject of each if conditional clause is we, and it raises the question, who is the we? What's the antecedent? What, what are the circumstances of these people that are included in the we? Since Paul is the author and Timothy is the recipient, then we know that they're both in mind here. As far as circumstances, Paul is in Rome. We see this in 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 8, 16, and 17. And he is quite possibly, uh, uh, well, we know that he's in prison in Rome from those verses. And quite possibly he was in what's been known uh, since medieval times as the Marmartine prison. Although back then it was called the Tullianum, I understand, which comes from the archaic Latin word Tullius, which means spring, because there is a spring in the bottom of it. Um, it was also called, their inscriptions from that time, about that time of Paul, uh, that just say carcer, from which we get the word incarceration. And carcer means prison. So uh, Paul was in, uh, in this carcer. There was really just one prison in Rome at the time, and it was this one. You can go today and see it. It's been changed a little bit. Today it's two rooms, a bottom room and a top room. At that time it was one room in a conical shape. It's carved out of the stone, and then other stones were laid on top to form a cone. And the only way in or out of the prison was to be dropped in from above through a hole. And that's where they gave food to you, too, was to drop it down from above through this hole in this conical-shaped prison that existed. And it wasn't a prison that was built for uh, punishment of people, not like our prisons today. Instead, it was a holding tank for people who were condemned to die. It was uh, that you might be there for several months, but you knew that if you were there, you were on death row. Uh, We know that Paul was expecting execution. 
In 2 Timothy 4, 6, uh, he, he talks about his coming death. And if he was in the, in the carcer, in the Tullianum, it would have been a cold, damp place, and Paul could have used a, he would have needed a good cloak. And interestingly enough, in 2 Timothy 4.13, we find that Paul is asking Timothy to bring his cloak that he left in Troas. It would be especially helpful at any time because it was a cold, dark, cold damp place, but especially when winter came, and Paul asked Timothy to please arrive before winter if he can. Timothy was in Ephesus at the time with a fellow by the name of Onesiphorus, who uh, Paul asked Timothy to greet, along with Prisca and Aquila, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, and chapter 4, verse 19. Uh, Paul had left Timothy there in Ephesus to build up the church with his teaching and example. The we would have also included believers in general, since this is a trustworthy saying, as we've talked about. The phrase trustworthy saying, or Faithful saying or faithful word, depending upon your translation, is only used in these personal letters of Paul to Timothy and Titus. Nowhere else in the letters of Paul do we find it. Paul reinforces some common sayings of the church with apostolic authority. And many theologians believe that these particular verses in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, may have been a liturgical hymn of the early church. I almost wonder if it might not have been a hymn that was created by Christians as they were waiting execution during the time of Nero. It's an interesting thought. There's a challenge here for the musicians, by the way. I have not heard any contemporary Christian songs that use these verses as lyrics. So uh, that's one that we could maybe create here for Lion and Lamb. Do they have something like that at KBC, Todd? They have a song based upon these verses? Okay, the, you, you students have been to Kansas Bible Camp, then they, I know that they use lots and lots of script, songs set to Scripture there, so maybe that's one we can pick up from KBC. Notice that the verses use the present tense in three of the if conditional clauses. We have if we endure, and if we reign, and if we are faithless. Those are all in present tense. Um, we also have three that use the future tense. And they all say, basically, we shall or he, he will. But the fir- very first stanza starts with a break in the verb tense. It uses past tense, as we noticed. And, as, and we'll come back to that in a moment. As in poetry, we can expect that verses that break the tense repetition, that they're attempting to draw attention to something especially significant. And I think that's the case that we have here as well. Finally, let's notice that these verses make use of some literary techniques of cohesion. The repetition of words and phrases is obvious. We have several different words that are being used the same way. Just repetition of words. Adds dramatic effect. There's also parallelism. Not actual sound rhyme, but Hebrew thought rhyme, where the meaning of the phrases seem to echo throughout the, the passage. In Greek, there is no him, interestingly enough, the third-person personal pronoun, as in, we will reign with him, or, or uh, we shall, uh, or, um, if we, if we, um, or we shall live with him. The, the word him is not there in the Greek text. Instead, it's understood from the context of the verses. In verse 10, it talks about Christ. 
And in verses 12 and 13, it uses the first person personal pronoun, he. And so we understand the word him from that. I believe also that there is a Hebrew thought, what's called chiasm here going on, where the first and last stanzas mirror each other, and the two middle statements also mirror each other. This is instead of what might be thought of as a linear progression to the verses. And we'll see how this affects the interpretation of the passage in the end. Uh, I've tried to illustrate that in your worksheet that you have there by uh, showing A, A, B, B, capital A, little a, capital, uh, capital, is that right? Excuse me. Capital A, little, capital A, capital B, small b, small a, with the A's mirroring each other and the B's mirroring each other. Uh, That is typical Hebrew poetry, where you have almost bookends, where you have a a coming into a central idea and then coming out, moving out. And Paul, of course, was a Hebrew, born of Hebrews, even though he's writing in Greek. Right now, I'd just like to point out that these statements are not isolated statements. Uh, If you quote one of them by itself, you might be doing a disservice that they all are meant to cohere together and work together. They stick together. The context of each statement is important to the other statements. Okay, let's dive on in. If we died with him, we will also live with him. Died here, as we talked about before. It's in the past tense. And I found it really interesting, Amy, when you said we will, if we die with him, because that's what we'd expect normally, isn't it? The general present tense, that generally if we, if we die. So it seems very odd that Paul chose a past tense, aorist past in, Greece, in Greek here, to uh, make this statement. Uh, why didn't Paul say, if we die with him? How is it that Paul and Timothy and the Ephesians and all the rest of us died in the past when we are still alive? And we're reading these verses right now. Now, there's probably nothing controversial about this sentence for us here today. We had a baptism here a while back, and Mike talked there about baptism being a symbolism of the death that we have already experienced in Christ. Uh, However, there was, for a time in medieval history, people did want to die with Christ by being baptized just as they were dying. The sacrament was called extreme unction, The rationale was that baptism identified with Christ's death and absolved one of his sin. So that, and so they wanted to do that just before they died so that they couldn't die, so they couldn't sin again. Paul wasn't talking about extreme unction here when he talks about dying with Christ. Remember, the we here are people who are alive right now, and they're the people in view, and the death had already occurred to them. It's past tense. Paul probably was also thinking about his coming martyrdom right here, I'm guessing. Uh, That seems to be prominent in his thoughts. But even though Paul was on the verge of his own death by the judgment of Emperor Nero, Caesar, in other words, the uh, tense reveals he's not thinking primarily about his coming death. He's already died. His martyrdom is just going to be an extension of the death he died in Christ. In what many people consider to be Paul's earliest epistle, Galatians, he writes, uh, For I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life for me. 
In Romans 6, 8, Paul says exactly the same thing as we have here in this trustworthy saying. And he uses the same tense again even. He says in Romans 6, 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. The tense, I don't believe, is an accident. The trustworthy saying continues. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. What a great, uncompromising promise we have in this concluding clause. Because of the past event of dying with Christ, we have the real hope of a future life with him. The promise is based on the one who created life and the one who conquered death. This life is not all there is, and when you identify with Christ's death by accepting the particular grace... Mike is going over common graces last week and talked about particular grace when we had the Lord's Supper. When by accepting the particular grace of God's salvation, you have God's promise that you will be with Christ in eternity at a definite time in the future. In 2 Timothy 1.1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul lived his life in the context of constantly being aware of that next life. He built his life around this promise. In Philippians 1, 20-24, one of the prison epistles, Paul writes, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We need to ask ourselves two questions at this point. Have we died with Christ? And are we living if we will be and are and are we living as if we will be with Christ? In Colossians 3 3, Paul says, Seek the things that are above, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So with the stage set, the foundation promise in place, let's go on to verse 12 that describes two polar opposites that can characterize Christian conduct and that of enduring for Christ and that of denying Christ. Now we get into some of the controversial part. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Endure comes from the Greek word hupomeno. It's the same word used in 2 Timothy 2.10. Just look at that real quickly. Where he says, "Therefore Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He endured everything for the sake of the elect. Again in chapter 3, verse 11. The same book, he uses the same word. He says, um, My persecution, he tells Timothy all the things that Timothy has observed in him. And he says, You've also observed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Again, talking about endurance. Randall talked about endurance last week. Uh, was a couple weeks ago, I guess, when he talked about, he went through Second Peter as one of the things that we need to base our lives upon. Paul is talking about it here as well. 
Also in chapter 4, verse 5, he repeats it. Uh, he uses the word endure. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I think Aaron likes that verse, if I remember right. <laughs> That's a... Um, that uh, the endurance is always in the context here, it seems like, with Paul, with suffering. Suffering with Christ and for Christ. Suffering on the behalf of the church. Suffering on behalf of the body of Christ. Suffering to build the body of Christ. Consistent submission over time and endurance is what Christ is evaluating. Soldiers get promoted by connections and performance. And we have the family connection through Christ. We, uh, now we need to perform if we want to reign. Lest we be discouraged, it may be helpful to remember that none of us do this perfectly. Nevertheless, here we have the carrot. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Reign gets into co-regency, reigning with Christ, sharing in his reign, as in Romans 8:17 where Paul talks about if we that we can be co, that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with him and in Luke 19 where Jesus uh, is talking with the mother of James and John and the mother of James and John comes to him and says uh, uh, I'd like my two boys to to uh, reign with you, to sit, one at your right hand, the other one at your left hand. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking because to do that, you're going to have to drink from the same cup that I drink from. And even then, Jesus didn't promise them exactly where they would be in their reigning. It's interesting there. He says he doesn't say exactly what would end up, but he does say, goes on to say, yes, you will drink the same cup that I'm going to be drinking of. In Matthew 20, Jesus uh, tells the, the, the story, the parable of the, uh, the minas, where a, rich, where a ruler goes off to receive a kingdom. And before he goes out, he gives minas uh, to his servants. And after he comes back, after receiving his kingdom, he calls in his servants and asks them to give account for the money that he gave to them. Uh, one of them that he gave a mina to comes back and returns ten minas. And Jesus tells him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And he gives him ten cities to rule over. We will co-reign with Christ if we suffer with him, if we endure. Do you want a goal to shoot for? Here it is. Do you want some reason for works besides a love response to Christ's sacrifice for you? Here's a test that's based on your performance. From Matthew 20, verses 20 through 23, you get the feeling that the curve is still being set. I don't know how many places there will be of special honor and authority, but I know from God's word that they will exist, and they will be filled by those who endure, those who willingly suffer to build his kingdom. Last time I talked, I mentioned how Paul seemed to like sports and looked at life as an endurance race, talked about uh, his verse from 1 Corinthians 9 where he talks about do not know that in a race all the runners compete but only one receives the prize so run that you may obtain it. 
winning the first lap doesn't mean you win the 1600 or the 10K or the marathon. I love the distance events in the Olympics and hope I can get a chance to watch them. I've run a lot of miles myself over the, over the years. Um, I was always running against time because I was never good enough to run against people. So I've watched the clock as I've run the, the mile. And I've noticed whenever I do it, that's always the third quarter that's the most difficult one. That's when I'm the tiredest. That's when it's, the finish line is not in sight yet. And it's awfully difficult to keep pushing through that, thirst, that third quarter. It's amazing. When the end is in sight, that fourth quarter, the time drops again. But that third quarter is when it's easy to, to lose the race at that point. And I think of that in my story of my life. I'm in the third quarter of my life now. Probably a lot of us here are that way as well. And it's a challenge to me to think, am I enduring? Am I pushing through this third quarter of my life? If you want to reign with Christ, you have to endure. The other end of the axis is the next conditional statement. There is the carrot. If we endure, we will reign with him. But there's also the stick. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Deny here is the word arniomai, probably butchering the pronunciation, it's Greek. Uh, it can mean deny, disown, refuse, dispute. All of those are possibilities. The NIV chooses one of those meanings and chooses the word disown. The opposite of arniomai instantly is didonai, which means to grant or give. In the previous sentence, we already identified that endurance isn't perfect submission, although it is marked by consistency. Deny here is not just a verbal failure to identify with Christ one time, although acknowledging Christ before others is a big part of what we're asked to do. Paul was in circumstances where you can be sure he was being given the opportunity to deny Christ, and I'll bet it was on his mind since he was on death row. But this trustworthy saying is also talking about a general consistency in being ashamed of Christ and denying Christ by our lives or by our words. Whenever we sin, by committing evil or by not doing the good that is at hand or by not acknowledging Christ when we have the chance, we are in a sense denying Christ and we all do sin, even after trusting Christ. Paul was so frustrated with his own failures that he cried out to be delivered from this body of death in Romans 7. He found within himself two things warring, the law of the spirit and the law of the flesh. And he was very frustrated that the flesh won out as often as it did. Denial was a failure to endure. The two sentences of verse 12 go together and they mirror each other. The carrot and the stick. He, and by the way, again, this is the first use of the pronoun. Uh, He, talking about Christ, referring back to Christ. Um, Referring back to Christ in verse 10. He also will deny us. Also here can mean likewise, in addition to us, or as in the same manner as we have done. Verse 11 was a plain statement of that particular grace that, that we've talked about, that uh, 
if you die with Christ, the jury is in. God has given his thumb up for eternal life. However, in this present life, the jury is still deliberating on verse 12. Here we have the carrot and the stick, an offer and a warning. What kind of investment are we making for Christ's kingdom? The race isn't finished yet. Resolve to endure suffering for Christ, to push on to good works that God has prepared for you, acknowledging Christ as the source of your work every chance you get. Do all you can to increase the kingdom of God. Pray for strength to and for deliverance from the temptation to deny Christ. For in the same way that you deny Christ, he will deny you. This, ca- this carrot and stick couplet in verse 12 really seems to mirror Paul's carrot and stick picture of 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. In 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, he talks about how... Uh, There is no other foundation that can be laid except the foundation of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And it's very important how we build upon it, either with gold, silver, and precious stones, or with wood, hay, and stubble. And eventually there will be a fire of judgment that will burn through and sort through what kind of work we have upon that foundation. And And only the work that we do for Christ will survive. What are we doing for him? That's a tough one for all of us. But it's a challenge to us to lead on the more disciplined Christian life. The fourth conditional statement seems to sense that we may be pushed almost to despair by our denials of Christ and our failures to endure. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Romans 14.23. In addition, this trustworthy saying may have come out of the very real possibility of martyrdom that was very near the early Roman church. Historically, martyrdom has vexed the church with many problems. Interestingly enough, uh, when someone endured to the end and died faithful to, to the Lord, there wasn't any problem with that. That was great. But the problem was is that uh, not all martyrs died. And not all of them suffered as much as everyone else. Some of them suffered less than others. When someone endured to the end and died faithful to the Lord, that was great. But what do you do with martyrs who survive and then are greatly esteemed for having remained faithful through such suffering to the point that they start giving indulgences to others to cash in on the credit that they have earned? And such things did actually occur in the early church. Cyprian talks about that. Even more difficult is what to do with people who denied Christ under the threat of the sword and once the wave of persecution has passed, then wanted to rejoin the fellowship. What do you do with them? The early church fathers, Tertullian and Cyprian, both struggled with these questions. And what do you do uh, with uh, people who go into hiding to protect themselves to oversee the flock, such as Cyprian did? He escaped the first persecution. And then eight years later, it came back around, and he got the chance to be martyred himself. But during that eight years, there were a lot, he received a lot of criticism from people because he hid himself for the purpose of ministering to the flock and overseeing them and didn't submit to martyrdom the first time around. Would Christ esteem less the life that is lived in faithful service than the swift proclamation of loyalty to Christ on the public platform? Which would Christ reward more, a beautiful life 
or a glorious death. Cyprian received martyrdom himself under the, emperor of Val- under the reign of Emperor Valerian. For us, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Interestingly enough here, I, I put for he cannot deny himself in kind of brackets there. Some people wonder whether or not that was actually in the original um, trustworthy saying. The difficult thing about Greek, one of the difficult things is there's no punctuation. So sometimes we don't know exactly where a trustworthy saying began and ended. And some people think that that might be a parenthetical addition on the part of Paul here, that maybe it's just if we are faithless, he remains faithful. I have no problem with it either way. Faithless, not meaning that we've never had faith. Remember that Paul is speaking to Christians and including himself. Between the two previous statements is a range of faithfulness and unfaithfulness that affects whether or not we are chosen to reign with Christ. In fact, in this letter, Paul mentions several people as examples of faithlessness and failures to endure We have Phygelus and Hermogenes in chapter 1, verse 15. We have Hymenaeus and Philetus in chapter 2, verse 17. And we have Demas, who was in love with this present world and left Paul in prison in chapter 4, verse 9. Boy, I'd hate to have been one of those five guys named here in Paul's letter. What a hard thing to have your name get down in history that way. The trustworthy saying comforts and heals us with a return to the promise of verse 11. He, Christ, remains, that is, he doesn't change, faithful. He remains faithful as contrasted with our faithlessness toward him. For he cannot deny, and we have that same Greek word, arniomai again, he cannot deny himself. The trustworthy saying that Paul affirms says that he, Paul, Timothy, the Ephesian Christians, and all regenerate people can do nothing to achieve life with Christ except to trust in the foundation of his death in our place without meaning to make light the weight of responsibility that we carry to endure for the sake of Christ. It is comforting to know that our faithfulness or our unfaithfulness to Christ cannot remove us from the promise that we have in verse 11. While there have been some commentators who have taken verse 13 to be a continuation of the statement about denying Christ and come to the conclusion that Christ's faithfulness to himself is displayed by punishing us with the loss of salvation for denying him, I don't think such an interpretation is really at odds. Oh, I believe actually that such an interpretation interpretation is at odds with the promise in verse 11 and the context of Paul exhorting Timothy to be a faithful soldier in the cause of Christ, not to go AWOL, absent without leave. This trustworthy saying is a short summary of 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. We've already talked about the foundation, building upon that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or with wood, hay, and stubble, the carrot and the stick. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The promises of Scripture stand for those who have trusted Christ. John 6, 29, 39, John 10, verse 29, etc. 
Scripture says that God won't lie or deceive or be tempted. These self-limitations add to his majesty instead of making him less than infinite. In the case for Christ, Lee Strobel talks about Billy Graham and Charles Templeton. Actually, the case for faith. I've got the wrong title here. Um, good book. These guys, uh, Billy Graham and Charles Templeton, were both founders of Youth for Christ International. Strobel's story is verified by Charles Templeton's own son, Brad, on a web blog that he has. I copied off it, copy of it here. Uh, it's called Brad Ideas. And Brad Templeton writes, he was being encouraged to go visit a museum in, near Cincinnati, Ohio. Maybe you've heard of Ken Ham and the Creation Museum that's there. They have a special exhibit dedicated to uh, uh, Charles Templeton. And Brad writes, I remain perplexed that my father gets such a large exhibit at the Creation Museum along with the likes of Darwin, Scopes, and Luther. Today, after all, only older people know of my father's religious career, though at his peak he was one of the most well-known figures of the field. He and his best friend, former roommate, Billy Graham, were taking the evangelism world by storm. And until he pulled out, many people would have bet that he, rather than Graham, would become the great star. You can read his memoir, here online. This is all long ago and a career long left behind, but there may be an explanation based upon what he told me when he was alive. Among many fundamentalists, there's a doctrine of once saved, always saved. What this means is that once Jesus has entered you and become your personal savior, he would never, ever desert you. It is, it is impossible for somebody who was saved to fall. This makes apostasy a dreadful sin for it creates a giant contradiction. For many, the only way to reconcile this is to decide that, he, that my father was truly never saved after all, that it was all a fake. Only somebody who never really believed could fall. Except that's not the case here. My father had the classic religious experience conversion, as detailed in his memoir. He was fully taken up with it. And more to the point, unlike most, when much later he truly came to have doubts, after he had studied at Princeton University, he debated these doubts openly with his friends, like Graham, and finally decided that he couldn't preach anymore after decades of doing so, giving up fame and a successful career with no prospects. He ended up becoming an editor for a newspaper in Canada. He couldn't do it, couldn't continue preaching, because he could not feel honest preaching to people when he had become less sure himself. That's not the act of somebody who was faking it all along. I think Brad Templeton needs to hear, and, and others too, that there's another route as well. It's not just that you're either saved and you endure to the end and never sin again. It's not, or it's not that you, uh, uh, it's not that you were never saved to begin with. There's a possibility that as a Christian, we may not endure. We may deny him. We can fall away. We have the stick and the carrot. We have the opportunity to reign with him based upon how we live this life. But the foundation is sure. 
I don't know for Charles Templeton. It does get murky when somebody gets to that point, and it gets a little bit tough to know what was really in their heart, what did they really believe at the beginning. But if he had true faith at the beginning, if he really did trust in Christ as his foundation, then God's promise remains sure. Let's end. Lord, I want to just come to you here and, and I thank you for your scriptures. Lord, I pray that you'd impress them upon us. If we died with him, we shall live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Thank you, Lord, for that. Help us to live our lives in light of eternity. Help us to invest our lives as best as we can for your kingdom and for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.